Certainly don't want to rob Roger of time that I'm looking forward to his having because we're excited about this report and lesson concerning the work that he and Donna are doing so faithfully and effectively in the country of Malaysia, a country we have a special love for, having lived there for not as long as we had hoped we could live there, but at that time the government got other ideas after we'd been there a while. We're so delighted, however, that things have changed to the extent that Roger and Donna can do work there. Uh, but it is particularly gratifying to have Roger and Donna Campbell there, uh, people like Roger and Donna, because we know when we live there that not everyone who comes through a country as a missionary or as a preacher who is visiting is necessarily what he uh, needs to be and what you would hope he is. And sometimes you face difficulties and challenges from people coming to foreign countries who are not teaching uh, what you would want them to teach. And you have to deal with error there just as you do in this country. That's why it's so gratifying and exciting and was to us when we learned that Roger and Donna Campbell were going to be working in the country of Malaysia because we know them. We know of their love for the truth, their long stand for the truth, the kind of people they are, the kind of work that they have done. At Union Grove for 10 years or so, I believe. Uh, of course, prior to that, Roger was in Taiwan for, what, 20 years or so, I guess, or many years, and um, did a wonderful work there, speaks fluent uh, uh, Chinese uh, Mandarin, and uh, is using that language even in Malaysia where um, there is a, a pretty uh, a substantial population of Chinese there. So his background uh, has served him well, his training and experience, but we are delighted that they are working in the country of Malaysia and uh, doing such an effective work and we look forward to hearing the latest about that work right now as Roger Campbell comes and speaks to us. Don and I are delighted to be with you tonight. Uh, the time is uh, passing so quickly. I mentioned to someone before services, it seems like I was just here last Sunday night, but in fact it's been a year ago. We're thankful that by God's grace and God's providence, we're able to be back in the States for a few weeks. God willing, we'll be leaving to go back on August the 1st. But we're visiting a number of supporting congregations. Uh, I think we'll be going to 12 or 13 during the next few weeks' time. And in July, we have two weeks of Bible camp that we conduct up in Polk County, Tennessee. If you have children that are Bible camp age between grades 3 and, ages, uh, and age 19, we still have some openings. And so if you'd like to find out a little bit more about that camp that we conduct at a place called Greasy Creek. That's what the locals call it, Greasy Creek up in uh, Polk County. See us after services, and we can give the information you might uh, need for that. What I'm going to do tonight, God willing, as I express to the elders, I'll take just a, a brief portion of our time tonight to just give you a very general update on some of the things in which we're engaged in Malaysia, and then we're going to have a Bible lesson. Uh, we're blessed by God to be able to have open doors. That is, well, by that I simply mean we have opportunities to teach. And in Malaysia, there's really a, a large uh, international community there uh, in the area that we live. And so just thinking quickly a few moments ago in, in my mind 
We've been able to have Bible studies, ongoing Bible studies, with people from six different nations. Uh, we've studied with people from neighboring country of Singapore, of course, Malaysia, uh, from Taiwan, Korea, uh, from China, and also Myanmar, that's a country formerly known as Burma. A lot of people in Malaysia from uh, Myanmar. Uh, one of our most recent converts, a young man by the name of Noon, uh, obeyed the gospel after studying with me about ten times. It's interesting, when I study with Anun, uh, he doesn't speak hardly any English. And I do zero Myanmarese or whatever the language is there. But he has lived in Malaysia for six years, and in his daily contacts with Chinese people, he's learned how to speak Mandarin. And so we've had, had our Bible studies in Mandarin, and he knows enough. He can't read Chinese, but he can understand it, and he can speak it. And so when it comes to some specific Bible language, then uh, he would read in the Myanmar Bible, and I would read in the Chinese Bible, and then we'd get out the English Bible, and he could pick out some of the words. And so it's, it's really exciting to see those types of things. We had a campaign among six of the congregations in the Klang Valley in March. Brother John Moore, who is the, the main speaker on the DVD, Searching for Truth, was the speaker. And no one knew in advance what kind of response to anticipate. And so the brethren in that area went together and rented a facility on one of the campuses of the local universities. And in three nights, we had 181 different visitors who came to those services. And I don't know from that number how many have been engaged in follow-up Bible studies, but the first night there was quite a unique man that came to those services, and, and they said, Brother Roger, why don't you sit beside him? And so I sat beside him, and I sat beside him the second night, and as uh, the session came to an end, I approached him about a Bible study, and one thing led to another, and the following week we began a study, and just uh, last Saturday, he was baptized into Christ after 11 studies. And so uh, he came, he traveled about 45 minutes to one hour in response to an announcement he saw in the newspaper. And so uh, we thank God for people that have that kind of interest. Earlier this year, we baptized a couple of women that we'd studied with who were there from mainland China. And uh, one of them is it's a mother and daughter combination and the daughter's involved in running a restaurant. And uh, so we're just thankful for all the opportunities. I did some scribbling a few days ago. Just May was a pretty common month for us. And in the month of May, I was involved in 33 public lessons, either 33 Bible classes or 33 sermons. And about a third of those Bible classes are an hour and a half to two hours in length. And in addition to those 33 public lessons, I was involved in between 25 and 30 private Bible studies. So we have something going on literally every day of the month. Something is scheduled every day of the month except the first Saturday of the month. We don't have anything on a monthly basis, but normally something comes in there. And so we have an arrangement by which the first weekend of each month we're with one congregation or that same congregation the third weekend of the month. On the second weekend of the month we go to another city and the fourth weekend we go to another city. So we're basically working with, with three or four churches all of the time on a consistent basis. And so we know from month to month and from week to week where we're going to be each of those times. About half of my lessons are done in English, about half are done in Chinese, and, 
and some of them are bilingual, meaning uh, the audience is made up of people that maybe are not real strong in English or maybe not real strong in Chinese, and so I speak in Chinese and I translate those lessons into English. But we're, we're thankful for the opportunity to be there. Just as there are challenges here, there are challenges there. Trying to develop leadership, trying to help the brothers progress in their ability to prepare lessons, and trying to get the local members involved in personal evangelism. We're able to do some printing there at very minimal cost. I, I gave a copy of a booklet we just had print. I gave a copy to the elders this evening. It's a 68-page full-length page booklet that we printed there for, it's very well done, for 80 cents per copy. I mean, that's just unthought of in these territories. And so we're able to get some printing done there, and we're thankful for that opportunity. There may be some specifics you would like to know about. I'd be glad to answer any questions you have after services. But we're thankful for you, thankful for your support of our work. If you were not doing that, then we would not be able to be there, and we would not be able to do the work that we're engaged in. It was in the fall of 2009 that, <coughs> that we made our, our final decision to be involved more intentionally in the work in Malaysia. We made a five-year commitment beginning in January of 2010, and it's really mind-boggling to think that at the end of this month we'll be halfway to the end of that original commitment. But we're, again, we're thankful for you and for your commitment to that work and to the churches there. Tonight I want to talk about a subject that's not evangelistic related per se, although it's indirectly related to evangelism. According to the message of the first four books of the New Testament, we would conclude based upon the information that's supplied there that Jesus lived on the earth for a period of some 33 or 34 years. We know that at the age of his baptism, he was about 30 years old. And then using the book of John to calculate according to the Jewish feast that are noted in that book, we would estimate that his public ministry lasted for a period of some three to four years. And you know the, the end of that message is that Jesus died on the cross. Was buried the same day on the third day by God's power. He rose from the dead, stayed on the earth for 40 days, and then he ascended back to heaven to sit at the Father's right hand. What was the plan then? What was the plan for carrying on the Lord's work when the Lord himself was no longer living among humans? Surely there was a plan. If God had a plan for man's redemption that was in the mind of God before the foundation of the world, and surely if Jesus pronounced in advance, I will build my church, surely there was a plan for keeping the Lord's work going. And there was. And that plan was for the Lord's work to be carried out by the Lord's people. Jesus had personally trained the twelve. And through those twelve, there would be a, or through the eleven plus Matthias, there would be a fabulous beginning in Jerusalem. 
But how was the Lord's work going to be carried out and maintained on the planet Earth in His absence? And the answer is, He would carry it out through His followers. The Lord's cause, the Lord's work carried out by the Lord's people. Well, what if the Lord's people decide, no, not interested? Well, in that case, the Lord's work would not be carried out. Now, so let me ask you tonight, just point blank personally. How much are you involved in the Lord's work? Or if we rephrase that and add a word, how much are you zealously involved in the Lord's work? What kind of answers would we get tonight? Or if we traveled across the county, if we traveled across the state lines and presented the same question in, in a separate assembly of God's people tonight. What kind of response would we get in general to the question, how zealously are you involved in the Lord's work? Sometimes, you know, we think, well, I really want to do more. I guess I just never get in there and get started. And so sometimes the thought may be, well, well what is there that you might do, preacher? What is there that you might do that could motivate me to be involved in the Lord's work? Sometimes we wonder, what in the world can we do to motivate our young people to be involved in the Lord's work? Or what can we do to keep our middle-aged people involved in the Lord's work? Or what can we do to keep our older members motivated to be involved in the Lord's work? Well, what answer we might, whatever answer we might give for the young people, that's the same answer it would be for any other group of people. And so tonight, let's tackle that question together. Not from the vantage point of a preacher, not from the vantage point of one who wants to be motivated by a preacher, but let's, let's look at some Bible thoughts tonight. In answer to the question on an individual basis for you and for me, what can motivate me to be zealous in the Lord's work? What can motivate me to be zealous in the Lord's work? And I'm going to give you three brief and very simple answers tonight. These are not Einsteinish answers. These are not Solomon-type answers. You don't have to be a Solomon or Einstein to get these answers. But these answers are true for every age group of Christians. These answers are true for Christians of every generation. What can motivate me to be involved in the Lord's work? Number one. Every child of God ought to be motivated to work zealously in the Lord's work because it's God's will that we do. So which simply means this. God wants every one of His children to be zealously involved in His work. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, I know it's a passage that's familiar to most that are in this assembly tonight. What does it say? With my beloved, be ye steadfast, unmovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now there's an appeal. There's an appeal that's directed to the church of God in Corinth. 
To whom was the book of 1 Corinthians written? 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. The church of God in Corinth. And so the Holy Spirit's appeal through the Apostle Paul was for every member of the church, for every member of the church in the city of Corinth to do what? To be involved in the Lord's work. To be steadfast. To be unmovable. Always. And then what's the next word? Abounding in the work of the Lord. That's God's will. That's God's will for every member of His church in every part of the planet. And whatever might be said about any of God's instructions from the time of Adam and Eve to the close of the book of Revelation. Every instruction that God has ever given to humans is an instruction that humans are capable of carrying out. Because the God of heaven is a God of fairness. For example, look in your Bible in Romans chapter 16. So we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, here's the charge. Here's the revelation from God that He wants every member of His church to be always abounding in His work. And so you say, well, it, it, do you reckon anybody has ever done that? We know that's what the Bible says God wants us to do, but, but do you think it's really possible for people to get in there and really be involved? In Romans 16, when Paul sends greetings to the church in Rome, he mentions a number of individuals there. People to be saluted. Look in verse number 12. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa who labor in the Lord. So here are two individuals who labor. And then notice the rest of verse 12. Salute the beloved Persis which labored much in the Lord. And so we know then in the region of Rome there are two individuals described in verse number 12 as individuals who labored in the Lord. And then there's a third individual noted in verse 12 who is one as described who has labored much in the Lord. And so we would ask the question tonight, look, if it was possible for our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus to work much in His kingdom, in His cause in the first century, then is it still possible for members of the Lord's church to work much in His cause today? And the answer is yes. And not only do we find the New Testament concept of working in the Lord's cause, and not only do we find the New Testament concept of abounding in the Lord's cause, but in Titus 2 and verse 14, the message is that Jesus has purchased to Himself a people that He wants to be zealous of good works. Titus 2 and verse 14. So, so again, that's the standard that God has set. God wants His people to be zealous of good works. And but again we step back and ask the question, do you suppose anyone has ever done that? And I present as evidence of that tonight a man who's mentioned in one book out of 66 in the Bible. The man's name is Epaphroditus. An unsung hero of Bible times. Epaphroditus was one who came from the church in Philippi when Paul was in prison in Rome, and he took things from that the church in Philippi was supplying for Paul's needs, and he brought those things to Paul. 
And the Bible says in Philippians 2 and verse number 30, this man Epaphroditus was in the King James language nigh unto death. Near unto death. Well, people get near to death many times. But what's the reason for Epaphroditus being near unto death? For the work of the Lord. So, so here's a man who was so engaged in the work of the Lord that it nearly killed him. So here's a man who took seriously the Lord's charge to always abound in his work. Here's a man who took seriously the Lord's charge to be zealous of good works. And so tonight, I'm saying to you tonight, number one, every member of the Lord's church ought to be motivated to work zealously in the Lord's cause because it's God's will for us to do that. And as servants of the Lord, our thought is, Master, what do you want us to do? Sometimes in the New Testament, the church is described as the Lord's body. And in the physical body, each part has its own function or task to carry out. In the same way, in the Lord's church, every member of the church has a task or a function to carry out. We all have a part to play. Sometimes in the New Testament, the Lord's church is compared to an army. We are to be what? Good soldiers of Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 3. Well, if we as individuals are soldiers, then that in which we are engaged then is compared to an army. Again, in thinking in military terms, those who are in the military, each individual soldier has a task or job to do. And so it is in the Lord's church. We have different tasks, we have different abilities, but we all have something to do. And then perhaps the clearest illustration is the comparison of the Lord's church to a vineyard. It's the vineyard of the Lord. And we think about that parable of the labors in the vineyard recorded in Matthew chapter 20, where a man goes out to the marketplace where people are waiting there to be hired for a day or for whatever period of time and the the owner of the vineyard hired them for one purpose what was it to go into his vineyard question what did the one who hired them anticipate and expect them to do when they went into his vineyard he expected them to work and so it is because the Lord's church is comparable to a vineyard, then the Lord expects us and wants us to work in His kingdom. And that, that simply means, as we would say in modern terms, if we are in the Christ, if we are a member of the Lord's church, then working for His cause just comes with the territory. It's not a burden. It's our way of life. And so number one, I ought to be motivated to work zealously for the Lord because number one, I know the Lord wants me to do that. But number two, every member of the church ought to be motivated to work zealously for the Lord because we're grateful for what the Lord has done for us. You might say we appreciate it. You might say we're thankful for it. But it's an expression of our gratitude for what God has done for us. 
done for those of us, the Bible says, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 and verse number 8. Because of the Godhead's marvelous grace, we are able to be children of God. He bestows His blessings upon us. And in response to God's grace, in response to God's wonderful blessings, we ought to have a heart of thanksgiving that is prepared to work and work and work for our Lord. The Bible says that God spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, Romans 8 and verse 32. Now think about that. God had a Son. But God was not willing to spare that son. Why? Because of you and because of me. Jesus didn't die for Jesus. Jesus had no sin. Jesus died for sinners. And the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 that Jesus bore our sins. And so because we are grateful to the God of heaven for such a wonderful plan, because we are grateful to the God of heaven for His marvelous grace. Because we are grateful that Jesus died for our sins. We ought to work zealously in His call. What a fantastic description we have of Jesus and what He did recorded in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. It's a play on words. The Bible says that Jesus forfeited or gave up His state of being rich. And He became poor, or poor, for our sakes. That we through His what? That we through His poverty might be rich. Is that not amazing? You see, I don't ever remember reading in the Bible about Jesus coming from a rich Family. Oh, no, it's not talking about the type of home in which he grew up. The riches of Jesus or Jesus giving up that rich circumstance or environment, that's talking about what he had with the Father before he came to this world. He was willing to give up the glory of heaven. The Bible says in Hebrews 2 and verse 9, he was made a little lower than the angels. That he, by the grace of God, might taste of death for every man. So he gave up, he forfeited that richness and became poor. Came to live as a man. Came to live as a servant. Why did he do that? Why, oh why would he do that? And the answer is given in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 that we through his poverty might be rich. Now that's what God made possible. Not for people who deserved it. No one deserves that. Somebody says, well, you can be sure of one thing. The only people that are going to go to heaven are people that deserve to be there. Well, that's not accurate. No one deserves to be there. Every person, because the wages of sin is death, every person deserves eternal punishment. That's what we deserve. But God said, I've got a plan that will spare you the horrors of hell and, and bring you to heaven to live with me forever. And I'm telling you tonight, because of gratitude for what God has done for us, that ought to move us to be involved in His work. Someone decided that spiritual blessings should be arranged someplace. 
Someone decided that spiritual blessings should be arranged someplace. The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all heavenly, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Well, where are those spiritual blessings available? In Christ. Who made that arrangement? God did. So what are we back to? We're back to the idea of what Paul expressed in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. There's a little sentence in Colossians 3. When, when Paul is writing in Colossians 3 about we put to death the members of our body. We put off the old man. We put on the new man. And one of those things we put on as a new man, right at the end of verse 15 in Colossians 3, the New King James has two words. The English, the, the, the King James has three words. The King James is, Be ye thankful. New King James, just two words. Be thankful. Well, what is there that Christians have to be thank about, thankful for? Well, the list goes on and on. We remember the story. Not a made-up story. It's a historical record. We remember the historical record. Let me say it that way. It's found in Luke 17. Jesus was, was in the region along, along the border of Samaria and Galilee. And he encountered ten men with a horrible disease. They were leprous. And Jesus blessed those ten, healed them of their disease, told them to go to the priest. And they did. And I'm sure you recall out of those ten how many came back to Jesus and expressed their gratitude and gave glory to God. One. It's not a parable, it's a real life account. Ten stinking percent. Ten percent expressed gratitude. Now, one of the ways that we demonstrate gratitude to what the Lord has done for us is by being involved in His work. Because that's what He wants us to do. But let me give you a third reason tonight before we close. What can motivate me and what can motivate you to be involved in a zealous fashion in the Lord's work? Number one, we should be motivated to do that because the Lord wants us to be involved in His work. Number one, that's His will. Number two, because we're grateful for what the Lord has done for us. And number three, because we love the Lord, we love His church, and we want His church to grow and mature. Look in your Bible, if you would, in, in uh, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. We sometimes sing the song, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. The church our blessed Redeemer built with His own precious blood. And because we love the church, because we love God, we love the church. And because we love the church, we want what's best for the church. And we want the church to grow and mature. Now, when we, when we sometimes use the terminology church growth, let me suggest to you tonight that most of the time, 
Now, most of the time in the 21st century, when, when those words are used, either in spoken or written form, people are talking about numerical growth. And, and it's true. When you study the book of Acts, since we're open to the book of Acts, when you study the book of Acts, you will read about numerical growth of the church. That's certainly part of the, part of the equation. But there's more to church growth than numerical growth. There's also something that we might call spiritual growth. That is the church growing spiritually within. We might even call that what the book of Acts calls strengthening the church. The building up of the church. Because realistically, with all candor, the church is at its best in reaching out to the lost so it can grow numerically when the church is at its strongest spiritually. It just makes sense. The stronger we are spiritually within, the more prepared we are to reach out to the lost and help them obey the gospel. And so in the book of Acts, we see the church growing numerically. We see the church growing spiritually, being strengthened within. And third, in connection with those two, we see the church growing geographically. Geographically. When I think about that, I think about a brother I was in preaching school with. And we mentioned earlier tonight, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, to be steadfast, unmovable. Well, just like in most preaching schools, when we studied the book of Acts, we were required to memorize each of Paul's recorded preaching journals. And I don't mean memorize the numbers in order 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> you do more than memorize 1, 2, 3. You're supposed to memorize where Paul went, every nook and cranny of the Roman Empire to which he went, and memorize the people that were there and the events that happened. And I remember the response of this, this one brother. I mean, he's more country than I am. He said to the teacher of the class, he said, Brother, he said, I don't understand. He said, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 to be unmovable. And here he is going all, all over the Roman Empire. Now I've got to memorize every place he went. But you see the point. That the church was growing numerically. The church was growing spiritually and the church was growing geographically in that new congregations were being established in different locations. And I'm saying to you tonight, when we think in terms of church growth, we need to think along not just one line, increase in numbers, but in think along three lines. Doing what we can to reach out in our community so people can obey the gospel doing what we can to strengthen the church from within, and then also thinking, what about those areas where there are no congregations now? But look in your Bible in chapter 16. Verse number 4 and verse number 5. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. Verse 5. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number now, there are two things pointed about, out about the churches in verse number 5. And let me just say in passing, the word churches here is not speaking about different denominational groups. There were no denominational groups in existence. It's talking about different congregations of the Lord's church in different locations, different local 
churches. And these local churches, according to verse number 5, something was happening. They were being established. The New King James says they were being strengthened. How? In the faith. Now that's an interesting word there. Back in Acts 3 when the Bible records that John and Peter went to the temple and there was a lame man there. And they healed that man. The Bible says in Acts chapter 3 and verse 7 that man's ankle bones received strength. Now let's make a comparison. It's the same Greek word. In Acts 3 and verse 7, whatever happened to that man's ankle bones when they were strengthened, that's what was happening in the spiritual realm, Acts 16 and verse 5, to the churches. The man's ankle bones were strengthened physically, and the churches were being strengthened spiritually. And then the Bible says in the same verse, they increased in number daily. You say, that's what I want. That's what we want in the year 2012. That's exactly right. That's exactly what we want for the church to have in the year 2012. To increase in number daily and to be strengthened. And then we also know the reality. Those things don't happen just by wishing. Those things don't happen by accident. You, when you study through the book of Acts and you read the marvel in Acts 6 and verse number 1 that when the disciples were multiplied, and in Acts 6 and verse 7, the number of the disciples was multiplied greatly. You say, wow, what was going on? Well, well it's, not, it's not a surprise. Because you go back up to the end of Acts chapter 5, what were the apostles doing even though they had been beaten and threatened on a daily basis? Acts 5 and verse 42 they were teaching and preaching Jesus in the temple and from house to house. So when you study the book of Acts, before there was a season of harvest, there was always a season of sowing. And so if we want the church to grow numerically, then in modern language we would say, let's get at it. In other words, there's work to be done, and let's not talk about what they ought to do. Let's get her done. Now, we talked about the next level of church growth or church maturity, of spiritual growth. Let's get at it. In educating the Christians, in edifying the Christians, in training the Christians. All of the things that are involved in helping individuals and congregations to grow. It doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by wishing. And it doesn't happen just by saying, well, let's don't do anything and maybe something good will happen. You see, in the book of Acts, there was a concentrated effort to teach the gospel to lost people. And you go through the book of Acts and over and over there's a concentrated effort to strengthen those that are already Christian. And then in the book of Acts, you see the work of the Lord spreading to new territories. It may sound old already, but I'm going to say it again. The church going into new territories where there's no congregations now, it doesn't happen just by wishing. It happens when we go out trusting God and get her done. 